0: Space and time are the fundamental dimensions of reality. Unless we can place an experience at a particular time and location, we are apt to dismiss it as a dream, a fantasy, or another product of our imagination. Philosophers will argue about whether the reality of space and time exist as something in a world external, to us, or as mere creations of our minds. Few seriously dispute, however, the idea that, at the very least, perceptions of space and time are filtered through our minds. We don't merely sense where and when we are in the world. What we perceive as reality is a mental reconstruction based not only on sensory data but also on factors such as our physical health and emotional condition. Albert Einstein became famous for his demonstration that time and space are not universally constant, but hold their shape only in relation to our individual movements and the gravity of our surroundings. His brilliant observations only became possible, however, because of the social machinery of the Industrial Revolution, in which the speed of travel between cities made it necessary to construct precise notions of universal time. Before the Industrial Revolution and the business imperatives that drove it forward, human perceptions of time and space were fluid creations relative to local convention and individual habit The rigid notions of a mechanical universe that Einstein reacted against were cultural inventions motivated by the growth of elaborate business models that demanded an unprecedented degree of predictability. Without the development of business culture, the sophisticated clocks and maps that we use to construct our increasingly digitized models of reality would not exist. So, what will happen to the culture of business now that the relevance of those clocks and maps is disintegrating under the strange new reality of COVID 19? Welcome to the second episode of the new podcast. Beyond Back to Normal, business in the time of coronavirus. My name is Jonathan Cook. I'm a researcher who has spent the last month and a half conducting a qualitative study of the impact of the global coronavirus crisis on the culture of business. This podcast is based upon that research. Last week's episode explored the strange effects of disintegration of the conventional data-driven model of business. The coronavirus pandemic has thrown the intricate digital machinery of information gathering and processing into disarray, creating the sudden realization that despite the deployment of supercomputers operating algorithms of machine learning that have evolved beyond the ability of human consciousness to understand. Nobody really knows for sure what's going on, and we don't have a clue about what's going to happen next. It's a strange experience for people in business to have to admit how much they don't know. In this week's episode, things are going to get even more weird, however, as we confront the dissolution of business culture's elaborate constructions of space and time. It can feel unnerving to confront the degree to which the COVID-19 crisis has warped the cultural construction of reality, upon which business depends. But don't worry, by the end of this episode, we're going to begin the process of finding our feet again. The situation, though, is too serious for us to simply Try to ignore the magnitude of what's happening around us. To say that the ground is shifting underneath our feet is an understatement. The business landscape has become fluid. If we're going to move forward, we won't be able to rely on the familiar ways of getting around that we have become comfortable with. We're going to have to find our sea legs. So, embrace the change but prepare for moments of nausea. For the conventional mindset in business, not knowing what's happening is a problem. Ada Czarmlaka, the co-founder of Joint Idea, sees things differently than that. For her, the crisis gives us an opportunity to achieve new levels of creativity.
1: When you don't know, I think it provides more creative space to the things that has been taught to us from generation to generation that you should get dressed, go to work, work something to earn money and all that stuff. Maybe question those things right now and create something that serves better. Not knowing, I think, just gives us space to, to dream. When you know, you know, you know, and you will say, this will never change. My youth, dad used to say that all the time. It wonderful things you're thinking, but things will never change. Maybe now they can. At this moment, we know that we don't know anything. Everybody knows that. But to be able to dream, you should not be within the fear, anxiety, all that uh, thought patterns in your mind, because that reduces your dream. Again, it puts it into a box among the things that you know, and that has been taught to you.
0: The predominant digital ideology of business tells us that information is the source of value, that the more we know, the more power and influence we can have. Ada tells us a different story, though. From her perspective, knowledge can be a source of confinement, cutting us off from creative possibilities. Martina Olbertova is a semiotician. She studies the structures of symbols and meaning in commercial culture, as she observes the way the world around her is working under the social distancing rules designed to suppress the spread of coronavirus she is reminded of the warped social navigation of double knowledge that she experienced as a child under a communist government
2: i feel like i'm back in communism you know in this like living in two different worlds at the same time, in this like dual alternative reality. Because under communism, you know, you had this official narrative of the propaganda. And then obviously, but it was like easier to understand how to navigate your way through it, because you just knew that everything that was official, everything that was in the media, in the TV, in the news, was the lie. Therefore, the opposite of that was the truth. So you kind of, in like a very weird, you know, warped up sense, you knew how to navigate your way through the world. But now it's like we're constantly bombarded by very, very bad news and nobody kind of knows how severe the situation really is because nobody really has any kind of previous experience with this kind of pandemic. Um, so nobody knows how much further it this will escalate. And at the same time you go outside and like people are, you know, roll and like, you know, running around and kids are like happily cheering. I mean, they have the masks, but like nothing is really going on severely. It's just this threat that's invisible and it's in the air and you like it's everywhere around you and you don't know. And it's just so severely unsettling. I feel like I, I have this like anxiety, like panic attack but it's everything is bubbling from the inside out because really outside, there's nothing happening. And I've never really, I ever, I've never really experienced anything like this before. It's just so like, you cannot really, like you cannot, I don't know even how to understand the situation. You cannot wrap your mind around it because when I was living in London, I would sometimes get like real anxiety attack when people try to like push me on the tube, right? And you like, there are so many people and so overwhelming and so much stress in the system because there's simply too many people living in the city and everybody wants to get, get by. But right now it's like, oh my God, I have like such a severe anxiety, but there's literally nothing going on. And it's, it is everything inside of me and it's everything in my mind. And it's probably, I don't know if it's like a figment of my imagination, if I'm overreacting or if it's like objectively really dangerous (laughs) for me to just walk around and like try to get some fresh air um it's very strange and you're you're trying to like get things off the shelf and you have this like gloves and the safety mask and the glasses and i feel like we're in some kind of like a space shuttle you know (laughs) it's like it's like this you know interstellar scenario you know being shipped to the Mars, you know, in 2355 or something. It's like ridiculous, you know? It's just, I mean, everything around is like business as usual, but you have changed, you know? And suddenly everything else around you is different because your perspective is different.
0: When Martina talks about feeling as if she has arrived on the planet Mars over 300 years in the future, she is giving voice to an idea expressed by many people that life under COVID-19 feels like science fiction. There are elements of life that are perfectly familiar and grounded in reality, and yet a sense of pervasive unreality. The elements of reality that have been jumbled somehow, brought together in a configuration where the details remain realistic, give us a structure of meaning that has been bent so that our efforts to make sense of our lives have become warped. Martina's description of the weirdness of the coronavirus regime places us at a distance from our comfortable home turf, separated in space and time, not only at a distance, as if on Mars, but in a distant, disconnected future. Can there be any return back to normal across such a divide? Martina explains the connection of this disorientation in space and time with the disintegration of the social fabric.
2: It's not an ideological threat, it's a biological threat, but still it's the, the, the symbol of a virus, you know? So virus can be both in your mind, which is like oppressing ideology, but it can also be a biological virus, which is something that's threatening your health and your life. But equally, they're like abstract, you know, intangible um, threats that you have no sense of how to control, which which throws you in this very uh, uncomfortable, like, state of complete uncertainty and insecurity, and you don't, you know, you don't know how to, you don't know who the enemy is, basically. And that is what was in communism as well. You didn't know who the enemy was. I mean, it could have been literally anyone. You know, you couldn't trust anyone. Um, and right now, right now, it's 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 very similar. You don't know who's sick. So like, you, don't, you know, it's like completely disintegrating this like idea of social fabric, because suddenly you don't know who to trust anymore as well. And they, and again, the enemy is invisible. Well, it's not only one dimension it's not only time it's also space so like time and space are very much interrelated so if you cannot move in our current scene and suddenly your sense of space is one-dimensional your sense of time kind of freezes along with it as well you know and i think that's why we are because we cannot move we kind of force to see time more, as you said, as a capsule, and now we're more aware than ever you know before that the past and the present and the future are sort of all happening right now, then, then we would be if we were able to move, you know, if we were able to walk freely, because the, the, you know, we would be in the now, the past would be behind us, and we would be probably like planning for the future but right now you really cannot plan because you have no idea how much, how much longer you're going to be in your own bedroom, (laughs) you know, um, not being able to go anywhere. So I, I have like the best schedule for this year. You know, I was supposed to be like flying around and giving talks, everything just is canceled. I cannot go anywhere. You know, so we cannot, we cannot plan. And so we're like stuck in, the present where we don't understand what things mean. And and that's really scary because there is no way there is no other way than inward right now. You know, you cannot go forward because you don't know you cannot plan. You really cannot go back because there's no there there anymore. Um you cannot move in the present, so you have to go inward. I think in, in like some kind of like a warped spiritual sense. This really is supposed to force us to go inward.
0: Martina brings a powerful weight to the conversation about COVID-19 when she talks about how it warps our experience of the basic dimensions of reality. It's an opportunity for growth, but it feels frightening, confining, and disempowering as well. Above all, the alternative reality we have entered into feels alien. It isn't just that we're in a strange place and time. It's that space and time themselves don't seem to operate in the way that they used to. Consider the case of Shannon Riddle, who works in the travel industry for Expedia.
3: I am a user researcher uh, at Expedia, And so normally, uh, my husband also works, he's at Boeing. Uh, So normally both of us are, you know, we've got pretty standard nine to five kind of jobs that uh, usually take us into the office and only have the option to work from home. Um, But uh, yeah, now (laughs) we have a four and a half year old daughter who suddenly we are sort of trying to homeschool uh, all while we're both trying to get in our 40 hours a week on both of our jobs. It's not to the point yet where we can just say like, okay, here's a laptop, go go work on, you know, call, call into your classes or whatever, work on your assignments. It's, you know, it's very hands-on still, and we still have to be watching her and keeping her out of trouble and, you know, keeping her on task as best as you can with a four-year-old. It's not easy, but It's kind of the new reality that we've all got to get through, at least for a while now. Right now, what are they calling it? They're not calling it lockdown or shelter in place. I think they're calling it stay home, stay healthy or something like that. Um, But the kind of mandatory social distancing, no non-essential businesses are open. um, And even of the ones that are open, it's kind of, you know, whatever restaurants and stuff that can stay open while doing just delivery and takeout stuff and and nobody's allowed to take sit-down meals or anything like that um so yeah it's uh (laughs) and schools are closed uh and we're all kind of originally they were closed until the i think 27th of april is when we're so they were supposed to open but everybody's just kind of waiting to find out how much that date is going to get pushed at this point
0: Shannon and her husband were used to a standard 9-to-5 working schedule, but have been thrown into a new reality in which school has no schedule. The dates get pushed, she says, but how does that work? Aren't dates supposed to be fixed points on a calendar? What's a schedule for if it can be adjusted so radically? What's going on? It's worth noting that it's only when her daughter's educational calendar becomes fluid that the coronavirus threat begins to feel real to Shannon. Living in Seattle, an early epicenter of coronavirus infection in the United States, wasn't sufficient to trigger the experience of disorientation for her her strange experience goes far beyond the impact of the virus itself it was a change in her family's previously routine schedule that made it all feel weird
3: i mean i think i've kind of been on the same journey that a lot of people have in the like oh it's just this like distant you know it it not that it won't impact things and obviously it was impacting the economy in china and and Um, you know, and the the people of China greatly. Um, But, you know, it still felt, you know, distant and, like, you know, it perks your ears up, but it doesn't necessarily feel uh, connected to your situation. But then, you know, the first case in the U.S. was here in the Seattle area. And um, I think uh, my perspective on it, um, it became... Serious once they started closing down the schools. I mean, I took it seriously, um, but I took it a whole new kind of serious once they were like, okay, schools are shut down for six weeks uh, was the first like, oh, okay, this is, we are not messing around. It's a weird teeter-totter being in between the, this is a temporary thing and it feels like it's taking forever uh, because it feels like it's the 97th day of March right now having all kinds of moments of being like, oh, wait, my usual markers for like, what day is what is is not happening. I'm not going into work. I, I slept in super late this morning, not even thinking it was Monday. Um, and <laughs> like, those things happen. I don't normally, you know, I I normally have certain meetings that happen on certain days or certain activities that I go to. You know, I'll I'll go to my boxing class on Saturday morning and that's not happening now. Or I go to choir on Wednesdays and can't do that. So uh, all of the usual time markers are gone.
0: Shannon is describing the feeling of disorientation. It's what happens to us when our attachment to the basic dimensions of normality come loose. Not only have the spaces that provide the stage for her social connections been taken away from her, but the markers of the passage of time are gone as well. David Altschul, a consultant who specializes in the development of character and story as tools of branding, describes his own experience with the disorientation under the coronavirus shutdowns. He tells us of the delightful relief he finds in the establishment
4: of a new schedule of online workshops. One of the things about my schedule is that although I am, have been at home for some uncountable number of weeks now and with supposedly with not very much to do, I get almost nothing done and can barely keep track of what I'm supposed to do each moment. The so one thing that really we could not imagine doing effectively In video conference is an active brainstorming session. And we had the first session last week. We'll have the next session tomorrow. We had the check-in. It's working brilliantly. It's really fun. It's very exciting. It's delightful to have something productive to do in the middle of the uh, pandemic. Mm -hmm. My experience has been looking for the right adjective, and I'm not sure that I have it. I would say there's kind of vagueness to my overall experience. At first, I was aware of how fast things were changing, but only by reference. You know, in the early weeks, starting a month or so ago, I could only tell because there were certain things that happened once a week. For example, I go to a singing group once every week on Thursday mornings, and I remember the first time I went and the guy who runs the singing group is very effusive, happy, upbeat, and tends to run around the room giving hugs to everybody who shows up at the (laughs) class. For the first day, I went in there and said, you know, maybe we're not doing any hugs anymore. And and I said it as a joke, and everybody took it as a joke, and I was the only one who actually refrained from hugging. (laughs) By the next week... It was very clear that although he was desperately eager to make contact with people, he was restraining himself. By the following week, we were singing with our chairs six feet apart, which, you know, makes the effort a little bit different, <laughs> since you're trying to harmonize. And then by the week after that, I didn't even come, and since then he's been struggling to uh, maintain this group by with this kind of technology. Although I haven't gone, but it was only by comparing one, my memory of one week to the next that I could get a handle on how rapidly our perception of what the norm would be was uh, changing. And that's been true in every aspect of my life. David's story
0: is a reminder of how just a little bit of separation can have a big impact What is six feet, practically, when we can still see our friends and colleagues? Well, it turns out to be a vast distance, when there is no more touch, when normal social interaction is disrupted. At least it is easy to remember why we are expected to conform with new expectations for the physical separation of social distancing, We know that physical distance thwarts the transmission of the coronavirus. What sense is there, though, in the distortion of the experience of time? The feeling that every day is Wednesday, or the sense that the month of May will go on forever, doesn't thwart infection. Losing our routines in our calendars doesn't keep our hands sterile. The distortion of time does not have a medical function. It is a reminder that much of the strangeness of our new lives in this pandemic doesn't have a thing to do with medical necessity. Our sense of time is distorted only because our sense of space must be distorted. It's a reminder that time and space are not truly separate experiences. They are inextricably connected. While we're afraid of getting coronavirus on our hands, we have plenty of time on our hands as well. We've all got lots of time now, so, well, in theory anyway. That's the voice of John Caswell, founder of Group Partners, a London firm that specializes in facilitating change through visual thinking. John has noticed the way that people are experiencing time in new ways, concluding that time is socially and psychologically relative and using this epiphany to extend his day in order to avoid exhaustion from a surge in online video chats.
4: There's also been a lot of kind of convenient
0: adjacent people who have just got more time on their hands, so they've started to throw a bunch of stuff out. Questions, wanting people to get on groups. Hey, it's great to talk to you. Hope you're well. You know, there's just been that whole uptick in that kind of level of work. So I've been inundated with that. Um, Also, the groups that I'm on um, that I've either started for one reason or another have
4: become a lot more active as well. So the WhatsApp groups have suddenly become big time. I've been working with a bunch of people on a remote working guide in the background.
0: So I'm my own worst enemy for signing up to some of these things, and I therefore extend my day to cope as much as I can. John's experience suggests that another kind of time play is going on among people in business. The urgency of this historical moment is inspiring him to engage in new projects, and so he has filled his day with more work, extending his professional schedule through the enhanced flexibility to work when, if not where, he wishes, without the need to ever engage in business travel. John has stretched time while quarantined at home. The opposite experience has been pursued by Alexei Sommer, who works as a consultant in design and communication, before the pandemic, Alexi was in the habit of engaging in frequent business trips to London. These days, she is embracing the life of her adopted home community in the south of France. Alexei is slowing down in her garden.
5: This whole slowdown, you know, thank, all I can say is thank, you know, I'm a privileged person. Thank God I'm not in the risk category. I would be really, really scared right now. You know, so I'm fearful for my parents, I'm fearful of that older generation. And I have a garden, I thankfully have a garden I can get into, I fear for people who are stuck in kind of tiny flats and, in in kind, of, kind of suburban cities who can't, you know, trapped in this kind of fear, who are kind of fed all this media that's kind of inappropriate. So I'm reveling in this kind of total need to reflect, it's like an opportunity for global reflection. Mm -hmm. on saturday i went out and went to our local organic producer and i got a whole bag of straw because i'm like i really want to set up the kind of you know potager i'm in france so they call it the veggie patches of potager
3: Mm.
5: and then i went on to the next guy and bought all my little seedlings and seeds and so i've recreated a heath robinson conservatory in in just a little bit of garden here and then i'm I'm, you know talking to the landlord about it Setting up a bigger thing, and then I've got all the advice. Mid-May I start planting, so suddenly I'm like, "This is what I've been wanting to do." Mm-hmm. So finally I finally have the excuse to do it, and it's very interesting. It's like it, it takes time, it takes research. It, it, you know, you you suddenly connect back to this kind of instinct about just pootling around the garden and kind of having a look at things. S- the slowdown means I have the time, so my. Uh, my default behavior before this was like, oh, I haven't got enough time. I haven't got enough time. I think we've all functioned on this very like, oh, I haven't got enough time. I don't know. Maybe I'm, I tr- I'm triggered like that a bit more. But I've, I'm a mom. I've got a five-year-old. I've got a limited amount of time to do my work. And so I'm always like, I've got to finish this. And I've got to finish this. I've got to finish this, And then I'll go and pick up my son. And then, I'll, and then it starts again. You know, that kind of routine. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it is a bit of a blissful interlude because I don't have – that pressure. Or I've sort of chosen to ignore it, but then to me, this reflection on if everything just stops for a second, it's going to be a very powerful moment.
0: How is it that two people living under the same kind of confinement can respond by manipulating their experience of time in such opposite ways? This Common experience of the distortion of time, combined with people's ability to manipulate time in a variety of ways, suggests that, in a reversal of the creation of universal time during the Industrial Revolution, we are experiencing a renewal in the subjectivity of time. Time as we experience it is splitting into a multitude of semi-independent streams. Given the general breakdown of strict professional and educational schedules, most people have been allowed the freedom, taboo in modern culture, to set their own hours. Even people living in the same house can follow different paces of work and play, flowing through time in relativity to the dictates of their activities and personal preferences. Philip Vostel, of the Czech Academy of Sciences, studies the cultural construction of time, and he explains how it's possible for time to be experienced at different speeds in different social contexts. What's more, he tells us, even as our experiences of time are becoming synchronized in a certain sense, Other aspects of our psychological movement through time are simultaneously
6: becoming desynchronized. The society in some respects have sort of slowed down, but households are accelerating, or inside of homes of people, things are accelerating because they have to do all sorts of things, multitasking and... um, negotiating you know when i can have a zoom and then my wife will have a will look after kids and then she needs to work and all that kind of thing you know it's a completely new sort of situation for many families i think including myself i'm living it the temporal experiences of people like that the time is dissolving and you know it's a one big pause and um all the rest of it that you said is it's a valid, you know, subjective impression of the current situation. Yeah, I think that the profound confusion and the sense of um, not knowing is something which is characteristic of the situation that we are in. Even from the perspective of time, there are different speeds, technological speeds that, you know, meet at the shared space that we can call virtual classroom or whatever, but they don't have to be, and they are not synchronized to just one tempo or rhythm because it's not really possible. I don't know, technologically speaking, I'm not qualified to say anything about that, but I'm not sure whether this is possible at all, but maybe it is, I don't know, to synchronize that everybody would have the same speed of internet connection Although, again, you know, this is a matter of you need to pay for a quick connection, right? This is a socioeconomic sort of question, you know? Some people can afford it, some people cannot afford it, you know? It's like, um, I think there are many sort of um, gaps in the whole shift, like that it would be smooth or that it would be kind of unproblematic or whatever. It's it's not, and it won't be. There is an interesting sort of... um, synchronization of experience or something like that (laughs) that uh, we don't have to explain to one another that much you know we can share the you know what are the you know commonalities and differences about about you know the places where we are but at the same time i think that there is something very common that that we currently share globally and this is this is to me a fascinating phenomenon these two, kind of the synchronization of cultural experience, as you, as you nicely put it, and the desynchronization of various kind of aspects of our lives, they go kind of in parallel. You know, these are two, uh, the, on the, so we have a temporal symmetry, and then we have a temporal asymmetry, and they are happening at the same time.
0: To the industrial mind, educated and trained to operate, According to the rigid timers of conventional business culture, the splitting of time into different streams of individual experience seems absurd. But then what physicists tell us about the interconnectedness of time and space seems absurd too. That doesn't make it less real. The existence of of the strange contradictory experiences of time that Philip describes hint at the mechanistic time of business culture being just one of many possible modes in which humans can move through time. How can we survive as a society, though, given the proliferation of this multiplicity of radically subjective streams of time? Philip suggests that we go with the flow.
6: Albert Camus, you know, the famous philosopher, uh, he suggests in the myth of Sisyphus that the only way how to survive this anxiety, this existentialist anxiety, is to accept the absurdity, meaninglessness of life, of the world out there, of the world within yourself, so the acceptance of the situation that we don't know when this will all end here we get back to groundhog day
0: a playful cinematic experiment of a loop in time that repeats itself over and over again seemingly for eternity the philosophy of albert camus considers the mythological character of Sisyphus, who was doomed to work to roll a heavy rock toward the top of a steep hill, only to be doomed to have the rock slip from his grasp just as it reached the summit, to roll back down to the bottom every time. In this way, we are learning that time does not march relentlessly, in a simple, linear manner. Sometimes it pauses in eddies. It speeds up and it slows down. It divides and reunites, allowing each one of us to have an individual experience in defiance of universal time. Many people in business are wondering when we can get back to normal, when business hours can begin again. As Philip points out, we don't yet know when this will all end, and what's more, it appears that the disorientation of the crisis will end at different times, in different places. This apparent endlessness is yet another strange characteristic of time during the COVID-19 crisis. In ordinary times, every unit of time has a precisely measured duration, It ends when it's supposed to. What we're living through now are no ordinary times. The strategy, Philip suggests, is to accept the absurdity and learn from it. Perhaps time never needed to be as regimented as we made it. There are interesting possibilities for a new kind of business in a society that rejects the idea that units of time are standard commodities like soybeans, and can be bought and sold as such. Ada Charnlika, who introduced us to Groundhog Day earlier in this episode, and began with her reflections on the creative liberation that can result from the abandonment of certain knowledge, also talked about her own lost connection with time. As the pandemic stretches on and on, regardless of whatever appointments we may have set in our calendars.
1: Time, when you talk, we're talking about time, you being there, I, me being here. Are you also aware that time is dissolving? Which day are we in? Is it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? Does it matter? A day starts and a day ends and somehow we're losing the idea of time within itself also. There is no time. We are always, on, always in the present moment, dedicating ourselves into the present moment and predicting what can happen out of it, the options out of it. I don't know. We're all debating about it today. Time was losing its essence anyway and now... Even day concept lost its essence. I mean, today I'm like, it's Tuesday. I was going to have a talk with Jonathan, you know, and I could have easily forgotten it because it's another day starting from morning till night. Somehow we are losing that essence of the time. Yeah, it's like a Groundhog Day every day.
0: Ada's reference to Groundhog Day gets us into some interesting philosophical territory. She is referring not just to the American holiday, in February, in which a small, furry manifestation of the ancient goddess Persephone clambers out of its hole in a town in Pennsylvania to proclaim its prediction about the arrival of springtime weather. She's referring more directly to the movie starring Bill Murray, in which a weather forecaster becomes trapped in an infinitely recurring groundhog day. That movie was an exploration of the confluence of the struggle for meaning in the context of an extreme disorientation in time. To understand another twisting of time from the ancient Greeks, we have the wisdom of Anthony Howard, CEO of the Socratic Leadership Academy.
7: One of the challenges confronting humanity broadly is the way we use time. And because we have become so utilitarian, so focused on doing and measuring against doing and results, you know, we've lost an appreciation for time in, in, that, in that sense of that thing that stretches out between birth and death. You know, The number of people who in the first few weeks of lockdown um, ran their diaries in the same way they ran them previously, so and instead of having a meeting with you, I'd have a zoom meeting with you, but, but I kept running my diary in the same way. Um, and then what started happening is people started to say, well, do we, is it really necessary that we have this meeting, you know, um, or is it really necessary that it goes for an hour simply because our calendar defaults to an hour. So what started to happen is we started to get critical um, in a critiquing sense, critical of how we were using our time. We think of a time in a, sequential sense like the story i told about java crow um you know the river of life it's this passage of events that that happen um as a succession of nows there was then there's now there's another now um and we think of now as simply a barrier between the past and the present and that just kind of moves along um that's a chronological sense of time the um the Greeks had another way of talking about time that they call chirological, based on kairos. Um, and, and this is much more a moment of... Um, Heidegger has a term called augenblick, and Kierkegaard has a, has a term called oibliket, which means the same thing, um, which is a moment where eternity touches time. And, and so, so in an Augenblick, eternity, if you like, intrudes and kind of captures your imagination. You can think entirely differently. You don't have to do, go along with everybody else. And so, so this, I'm not talking about flow, but flow is a not dissimilar kind of concept, you know, where, where time expands in, in moments of flow. Um, and so in the, um, in the Augenblick where this moment of vision, this moment of re- revelation, your world transforms and changes, Time also changes. And time shifts from a chronological succession of nows to a chirological expansion of the moment, expanding the present moment into the present, making this this moment bigger and bigger and bigger. And I'm not talking about bigger in a sequential sense, bigger from Tuesday to Wednesday, but I'm talking about bigger across this moment now. And you do that by, among other things, self-mastery and self-possession.
0: When Anthony starts talking about chirological time, he's getting into some deep mythology. When people talk about the Greek mythology of time, they usually focus on Kronos. Everybody has met Kronos. He's the old man carrying a scythe who shows up on New Year's Eve, ready to be cut down himself and replaced with a new baby version of himself, wearing a top hat just to be cheeky. Kronos is a titan of Greek mythos, one of the original reality-structuring divinities of deep prehistory. Kronos is the sponsor of chronology, the strict measurement and management of time in precise, orderly, never-varying units. Kronos is a clock master and a task master, ready to optimize your life down to the second. The thing about Greek mythology, though, is that it was never just the simple single Olympian standard that most people think of these days. Most of the material that was written by the ancient Greeks about their gods was destroyed long ago, but what exists still indicates that there were different competing versions of Greek divinities. So it is that along with Kronos, there was another Greek god of time, known as Kairos. Kairos wasn't just the Pepsi to the Coca-Cola of Kronos. Kairos represented a different kind of time, the experience of the opportune moment, a frozen moment of eternity between the moments of the orderly progression of the clock. The time of Kairos was transcendent and strange, unmeasurable, yet immensely powerful. It was the time in which ritual transformation might occur. As Anthony Howard points out, that's just the kind of disoriented time we are experiencing under the influence of the coronavirus. In this Augenblick of COVID-19, we are temporarily free of the monoculture of minutes. We can seize the forelock of possibility while it's still here, or we can let it slip through our fingers. Marcus Leto, who works with Edek Charmlicka at Joint Idea, identifies the potential for transformation that is inherent in our collective disorientation. The very discomfort and strangeness of our disorientation in time and space is what allows us to lose contact with external signals of our identities. As these externalities melt away, what we're left with is our human core.
6: Nobody can awaken when they're in their comfort zone. So, you know, this kind of idea of everybody at a mass level getting out of their comfort zone, you know, opens up the possibility for mass awakening on the the one hand as well, which I think is really, really important. The core of this is to really come back to the idea of what it means to be human and what does it mean to be a human being? And, you know, to reflect on that in good times and in bad times. As Marcus points out,
0: the potential for awakening contained within the disoriented Kairos moment of COVID-19 isn't necessarily a walk in the park, a simple feel-good moment of relaxation and contentment. Instead, it can come in bad times as well as good times. Let's remember that during this global pandemic, the opportunities that we find in business are not some kind of abstract philosophical exercise. They're being triggered by a calamity with a cost of hundreds of thousands of deaths and billions brought to the point of financial ruin. Ancha Fall works in supplying grocery stores in the region of northern Italy where coronavirus hit especially hard. She makes it plain that the disorientation of COVID-19 hurts.
8: I live in Mirano, that's uh, in the northeast part of Italy. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I'm in lockdown since two and a half weeks, but closed everything is, uh, we had since mid of February social distancing. And um, then the shops were closed two weeks ago. And since this week also production is closed, like everything that is non-essential is also, like the offices are not working anymore and you are not allowed to go to the office. So if you have to work there you, and you cannot work remotely, you're basically on, um, uh, we call it short work in German or in, 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 in Italian. I don't know what it's called. Like you work for two and a half days only, or you are like on a pause for nine weeks. In my work, I work in a shop fitting company and who does also retail design. So I am working in marketing, which makes my work tremendously more because I have to take care of the communication with our customers who are mainly for 70% supermarkets right now. And they come to us with all their problems and they don't come with us problems like we need a hundred shelves more. They come with us, where can we get mozzarella because we don't have mozzarella in Germany. And as you guys are in Italy, where can we get it from? And uh, can you, get somebody like shipping it to us or transporting it to us because transport for um, medical uh, supplies and food is allowed over the borders even though they are closed in europe i have actually more work and i'm panicking more i'm more stressed today i had a call from my boss um, who's a board member of our company who said oh i can read in your messages because you're writing everything three times or when you are, when we are asked in a group to reply somewhere, I'm the first to reply because I, I have an answer and just want to get it done and she thinks like, um, that's, she, she feels my nervous freak out in the email communication as well. And I try only to be resourceful, to not be coming in short work um, or um, if you get a leave of absence for nine weeks, you only get 900 euro for it from the government. And um, I have resources and could afford it, but I'm paying back a student's credit. And as much as I try, I want to keep in line with my plan for this year to finish it off. I have a, the story of Corona. I observed since January because my partner for freelance was traveling. And I told him immediately, 5th of January, cancel to go to the US and things like that. I had not a good feeling for, it, for that. He became sick for three weeks. So I was thinking, okay, maybe that's already it. And we don't know. And then I was calm over February, and then when it came to the actual lockdown and shops closed, I think, um, that was a moment where I really uncontrolled cried at home sometimes, out of nowhere, getting a message from friends, getting a message uh, from, from the office, and also controlling that. It's increased heart rate. It's uh, I cannot even describe my full system is out of balance, and... The worst thing is I think I eat little and cannot digest properly because I have a nervous stomach, kind of.
0: Ancha's experience of disorientation is of a body consumed by stress, sobbing at home while neighbors get sick and die. While some have the experience of simply learning to work at home, others deal with the disease or with not working at all. Whatever the symptoms of the disorientation, it all feels unreal. In New York City, Anya Pechko refers to the disorientation as a tizzy.
9: This is unbelievable. This is just un, you know, real. You know, it's mm-hmm. a bad cold. It's a bad flu. If you were, if you have, um, pre-existing conditions, if you're in bad health, if you are overweight, if you are unhealthy, if you can't breathe, if you're not taking care of yourself, you're at high risk. All the people are at risk, right? We have all these facts. You know, we've, we've shut down our world because we're in this tizzy. You know, I think the world has forgotten about World War I and World War II uh, and, you know, how people live. Uh, and, and so I think it's crazy. And so in that sense, I think it's very bizarre you know, whether you like it or not right now, everything about your life in a month is going to change. And you can either go with the flow and embrace it, or you can fight with your like scratching and kicking and screaming. And that's what everybody's doing. And that's what I think the psychology is doing. Everybody's like, don't have anxiety. Don't have anxiety. You know, you should have anxiety right now. It's called hypervigilance, right?
10: Hmm.
9: I mean, I am, I am having such a hard time concentrating on Uh, doing basic of things, things that I used to love to do. Like I love sending emails to people because I love to correspond on email. It takes me sometimes hours to write a three line sentence. And that's the fear. The fear is the uncertain because, and so that's what really irks me right now. There are a lot of people on, um, you know, computer, Twitter, whatever. It's like, these are the things you should do. And I'm really sick and like, nobody knows what to do right now none of us and we're not supposed to and i really don't want people pretending that that they do you know the world is shut down it's never ever 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 has happened so it just seems crazy um Mm. and i think it's very scary for young people um i think it's very emotionally challenging i think i think there's going to be people that are going to be harming themselves um You know, um, like, and, and so, and so those are the things that really worry me more than this virus. As I said, I think everything is in flux. I think this is a great space of gray.
0: Anya describes a world in flux in which once solid realities have become fluid. In business, these terms will bring to mind the creative potential of the experience of flow But for most people, the coronavirus shutdowns have high stakes. Survival is on the line, but so are people's homes. It's estimated that at least one-third of Americans have now lost employment due to the crisis. Many simply aren't paying the rent. Rashmir Balasubramaniam is a consultant and coach with experience working in international public health and economic development. Like Anya, she acknowledges the psychological crisis along with the medical danger posed by the COVID-19
10: pandemic. 10 years of my 25 plus years of, of work experience were in global health and in global development. So, you know, and if you've spent any time working in that world, um, and especially for me when I was working on water sanitation and hygiene issues, you know, I I remember having conversations over 10 years ago with with people, with deep experts in the field, who who were concerned about, um, you know, the challenges of animal to human transmission of diseases, right? So zoonotic diseases, they're called. So so this has been on people's radar screen for a long time. It's almost taken me a while to catch up with the depth of disorientation other people are feeling because it wasn't my first reaction. And I'm not a person at this point in my life that lives in fear either. So fear for me has, is not is not a reaction I'm used to. And I've had several um, instances over the last several weeks where I've had to remind myself that for the majority of people, there is a lot of fear, right? There is a lot of anxiety. There is a lot of stress. Um, Took me by surprise. Um, And it's not surprising when I stop to think about it, because for most people, there's massive dissonance between what they're seeing on their news screens, what they're hearing about in the world, and then what what they're experiencing just by being asked to stay at home almost as though they were on holiday.
0: Rashmir describes yet another aspect of the COVID-19 disorientation. The discrepancy between alarming media narratives and the tedious experience of isolation at home. It's difficult for individuals to catch up with others' perceptions of reality, or even to gain access to an understanding of what life is like for others, even just on the other side of a wall. Not everyone is chatting through Zoom. For many, the only vision of human beings outside their homes is of faces hidden behind masks. Alastair Somerville, who specializes, in designing spaces that enable diverse modes of wayfinding, perceives the potential for positive direction in the disorientation unleashed by the coronavirus crisis. The loss of our ordinary signposts to guide us through space and time open us up to the rare experience of awe
11: because i don't think people really have got completely used to the idea of what the heck's happening yet and you know if we are on lockdown now for you know several months you know the possibility of 12 weeks then i think i think the effects of it will become more obvious to people as as they go through it more i think it's it's just too early at the moment people are still in a sort of um disorientation more than anything else have you ever read research on the experience of awe yeah so there's sort of there's that six stage thing which generally is, is relatively helpful um, to discussions of awe about um, when one enters a novel space or novel experience um, self-diminishment i.e becoming the sense that you are small in a new space um, the, the sort of physical emotional effects in terms of the effect upon the body and then then you you get into that space where time and information perception um, your ability to map um, within the environment is going askew because you can't quite tell how elements relate to each other Um, so so your standardized methods of um, working out stuff become um, disorientated but then at the end of it you know and as, as well assuming the 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 experience of war uh, goes well um, then um, then one gets to sort of connection and accommodation i.e the sort of the the wayfinding and the things the patterns and the sort of the mapping recover and then the the, the sense of self you you resize because you you understand the environment you're passing through so the so the experience of all stuff is some. i mean i sometimes use it when talking to people because it's it's helpful for this idea that people disorientate
12: mm-hmm.
11: um within within spaces even if there are elements and artifacts that they understand I mean you know, it's not quite into transcendence but of course your your edge on to reframing um, the ability to mentally map or spatially map spaces. If you look at um, say the 19th century where, where the um, tourists going to Scottish Highlands uh, or to the uh, Swiss Alps, um, that sort of stuff what's interesting about that is sort of the way that we look back on it is it's just people going on hiking holidays and niceness Um, but actually they weren't doing it for that reason they were actually deliberately it was extreme sports club stuff they were going to go to these views these views of the mountains and the the alps and these things in order to experience awe. In order to be, and you know there were warnings in some of the literature about the possibility it might break you. That the experience of such an extraordinarily vast landscape, such an extraordinarily vast view and such depth and wonder might actually break you was actually inherent in the idea of going into the Highlands or going into the Alps. Um, because, Because they were deliberately specifically going to attempt to experience awe. Having an experience of awe, then that enables one to sort of as such reset one's sense of self hmm. within an environment, within within um, different environments. Um, so, so that seeking of awe um, was very deliberate amongst the Victorians, well, the wealthy Victorians, um, who were able to have that sort of travel. But it's but the experience of awe and the experience of transcendence, of course, does sort of work across all elements of society. One you know, one doesn't need wealth to experience awe and transcendence. And so, sort of the mechanisms of awe do exist everywhere, inherent in all humans.
0: It would be wrong to say that because the COVID nineteen crisis provokes experiences of awe that the coronavirus is awesome. As Alistair puts it, we are dealing with the inverted version of awe in which our reality is constricted even as we feel rootless. It's,
11: it's like the inverted version of awe because this is one where the people's reality is being shrunk down to their home, which is which is sort of the inversion of um, novelty, but it's that sense that sort of they're, they're, I I think it's the fact that this this is the first time, particularly for a society which is highly um, based upon, you know, hypermobility, I, you know, if I want to go out, I can go out. If I want to go to Paris, I can go to Paris. If I want to go to Thailand, I can go to Thailand. That sense of sort of, you know, sort of that one can simply just go out great distances, um, and now you can't. Um, that's so, so, so. Therefore, what what's I suspect is going on is of course that sort of now people are having to remap and reorientate into extremely restricted spaces and extremely restricted social relationships and that's as i say it's 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 an inverted version but it's the same kind of thing because it's 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 the restructuring you know and that's that's where you see in tr- or in transcendence of course is when when in the experience you're seeing people become to some extent rootless their previous maps and their previous understandings become unrooted and then they need to find a way of rerouting um and accommodating the new the new sense of space but this this is the backwards version this is you've gone for an idea that you could you could travel widely you could create or, you know, go to entirely novel spaces and all the rest of it. And now you can't. And therefore, the, the remapping is how do you remap an extremely large concept of being able to experience novelty and change to one where you are literally just in a few rooms at home all the time. This is creating a very, very disorientating environment. And without any form of solidity... Um you know a lot of the sort of things which which seemed solid um have now become very clearly liquid in the sense that sort of you know the sort of the fundamental structures of sort of how we thought about the economy and fundamental structures of how we thought about society have just sort of liquefied or become um gaseous in their sort of sense that you know what we thought was utterly, utterly and foundationally true is no longer true. The things which people thought were very, very, very solid elements, which, which they could understand the way in which they were passing through their life or their society, have now become become nothing. Um, and that's, that's disturbing for people. And how, how you re reconnect people when when the things which they thought were the most solid elements in their society have just just ceased to be is deeply strange for them i mean the opportunities are extremely huge it's just because i mean you know i mean there's there's a lot of work you know there's talks i do on post-normal design um which you know, I just came back from a conference, my final conference before I, um, we came on shutdown was talking about sort of the problems of normality. And so sort of the ideas that we might actually use this sudden liquefying of sort of all of the economic and social structures that everyone thought was, you know, completely um, solid. Um, The possibility that you could use this to create revolutionary um, elements to society are quite high. Things which were viewed as literally impossible suddenly have become possible.
0: Alistair's description of a fluid field of reality in which once impossible things now become conceivable sounds lovely until one considers the possibility that those who exert the most leverage over the future could easily lead us into a dystopia as well as to a utopia.
11: I think that the problem lies in when you've got this complete disorientation. There's the possibilities are that when things re-solidify, it depends who who seizes seizes the moment. Um, you know, you could you could end up with very much a sort of sense of authoritarian nationalism using the moment to be able to say, "Look at how terrible all that was. Let us let us make sure we never do that again." Um, and therefore, you get a sort of extreme pushback to um, a very very normalised sense of what was, or the possibility that we we actually embed the changes into a new form of society, as say a, a form of society which has been denied as being even possible to exist for you know years so you know there there are positive things you know the, because because things things which were clearly denied as being possible have become possible and and things which were viewed as imp you know necessary um, and and impossible to not have have been shown to be possible not to have um so, so that there are it does create you know it is a, it's an extraordinary stage because it, it's it's we've rapidly created huge number of question areas where people were just denying that questioning was even possible. They're going to get weirder at the moment people are just they're purely in the entry experience. you know we're not far enough into this experience to know what the hell people are going to react to it mm-hmm um. Because as I say, I, I would suspect we're we're in the early moments, and you know the the concepts of disorientation are going to hit very much harder in the next couple of weeks. Where where stuff which seemed, as I say, where where majority of things that people were, you know, the landmarks and place marks and edges and all the ways in which people understand where they stand socially and physically are are becoming you know, as I say, they're 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 sort of trans state at the moment in terms of what the meaning of things are, and that's that's very disturbing for people.
0: Alistair gives us hope for transformation, along with a warning. If the very dimensions of reality can be warped through our shared sacrifice, imagine what else we might be able to to achieve. All those things we have been told that businesses could never do because of the need for efficiency have suddenly become possible. When great transformations can take place, terrible changes become possible as well. Whether it's for good or for ill, the imperative to change in business is clear. Consider the predicament of Kim Arazzi, the founder of Innocency. Her business is centered around the direct experience of physical stimulus. So she is not one of those who can quickly and easily transition to working from home.
13: So, you know, I have my business Innocency, which um, is all about uh, helping people connect to themselves, to each other and to the environment using the senses. So I create experiences that help us tap into our senses to reconnect. Um, now, obviously this whole thing has impacted me hugely because everything I do is live experiences thats the whole point. Um, and it's really making me have to rethink how, how will I do things because you know all my events and dining experiences, I was supposed to do one in Davos next week Um, for 65 world leaders and uh, of course (laughs) cancelled So I mean everything's been postponed not cancelled but we don't know until when. So in the foreseeable future I'm not going to have live events so how do I pivot and and do something valuable where I add value to the world but not in a live way. So it's it's challenging but um, I'm finding the whole thing very interesting because I'm in an environment with a lot of other sort of gig economy, freelance, artistic creatives in tech and and the startup world and um, it's like all of our businesses have been like, gone for a, you know, like we don't know what to do. So we're all, I'm in so many WhatsApp groups and it's all like, oh my God, how am I going to pay the rent this month? And now, because all of these contracts now are, are postponed. So all of that is very, very scary and causes anxiety, of course, in all of us. And we're trying to see how we can help each other as a community. At the same time, part of me feels like I'm in a very lucky position because I always worked from home. I always was independent. I always had to find my way in uncertainty and deal with this kind of environment in a way because um i'm navigating through uncharted waters every single day i'm learning every single day because i don't know what i'm doing neither did any of us so i don't feel that that's scary for me funny enough it's just I just have to rethink <laughs> how I do things. Nobody knows, even the biggest leaders who have to make the biggest decisions that affect our lives, and certainly our government here in the UK doesn't have a clue. Um, it just makes me see that nobody knows. So all we can do is our best and and learn some you know practices of how to navigate an uncertainty and do it in a calm way and and work collaboratively and. Yeah, no one knows anything more than anyone else. We're now in a situation where we've all been put on the same playing field. Nobody has a clue. It doesn't matter if you run the country, you run Microsoft, you run... Nobody knows.
0: (laughs) Even though Kim's business model has been thoroughly disrupted by COVID-19, she regards herself as a native to these fluid conditions, confident in her ability to navigate without need of stable landmarks.
13: Now we're being forced to pause and reflect and listen to our collective body as we've been given this, this last chance. So it's an amazing opportunity for businesses and humans everywhere to reflect, regroup, and redesign the way we think and act in a way that's sustainable and respectful of our planet and our fellow humans. There's so much positive coming out of a pause. Um, for businesses, I think it's, yeah, reevaluating. Um, what were they striving for, and maybe coming those businesses that weren't built on purpose, maybe they're going to start thinking in this time of crisis where we see what's important, what is our purpose, and maybe we have to reevaluate everything and redesign and, you know our business to be more purpose led there's a shakeup coming, and I, and I think it was a needed shake up, so sometimes we have to be forced to pause in order to have that time to reflect and realize what we really want.
0: Kim regards the pause imposed by coronavirus shutdowns as an opportunity for transformation. She urges us to avoid rushing to reach the end of this experience and to take advantage of the unique conditions of the pause instead. Virginie Glasner, the founder of Acorn Oak in New York City, agrees with Kim's assessment. There are important tasks we can accomplish in this strange condition of disorientation that will not be possible in other contexts.
14: We want to take this as an opportunity to pause and look at the world and see what are the various um, new areas that are going to emerge with this remote working uh, from a marketing standpoint, what does that mean for employees to work from the, from home? What are the various needs and requirements that they're gonna face? Um, how can marketing support um, those employees? I think a pause is really needed and it's surprising that we don't do that on a regular basis. To me, a pause is um, um, taking the time to b- breathe deeply. You know, if you wanna take a, a figurative uh, example, it's um, allowing you to reflect on um, what is it that you like to do. Where do you see the, the most uh, creative differentiation? So pausing is a way of acknowledging that the world has become complex, um, that it needs a deeper thinking, um, not necessarily um, a direct uh, you know, linear thinking, that you would have um, taken a few years ago without even you know, realizing it. I think now we all acknowledge that the world is complex, that it's, it's uh, not just chaotic, but there's no more pattern. And so when there's no more pattern, you, breathing allows you to um, adjust, just take time to adapt and adjust.
0: Virginie suggests, that if we rush through to get to the other side of this disorienting experience in a desperation to once again clutch something solid and familiar, we risk losing the opportunity inherent in this fluid moment. Rashmir Balasubramaniam develops this idea, advising us to be mindful of what the strange experience of this crisis has to teach us. Though it is disorienting and dangerous, it can also contain doorways to creative insight and even joy. The COVID-19 virus can kill. The social and economic crisis that the pandemic has provoked can isolate and impoverish us and utterly destroy our enterprises. Fear is justified But the crisis is not simple. It is culturally and emotionally complex, offering us the opportunity for genuine change. Rashmir speaks of the gifts of disorientation.
10: It's one thing to say, well, we predicted this. It's another to kind of be in the thick of it and not know what to do or to feel helpless or to try to hold back from saying, I told you so. So there's a lot of very complicated um, I think emotions and experiences at play, the opportunity, I suppose, that I, I feel and see and worry that we, we might miss is the opportunity to go within. There's the opportunity to really go in and get to know who we truly are, what we're truly capable of, and to question, you know, our, how we've been living, what we've been prioritizing, how we're defining success. And the the beauty of us essentially, you know, all being confined to our homes is in theory, you know, we should have the time and the space to actually take a look at some of that stuff. But I don't know that most people have the tools to deal with the level of emotion that is coming up or even the mental tools to be able to be aware of and process that one of man's greatest problems is his inability to sit alone in a room. I fear we might miss one of the big opportunities that we are being provided with right now. Because if if people aren't willing to take that journey of going within and seriously looking within and being willing to face those complicated and quite intense, in some cases, emotions, then nothing really is going to change. Because ch- I, I strongly believe change begins with, within. The beauty of being able, being not being in a hurry. So maybe that's one of the gifts of this time is that we've been actively asked to stop and not be in quite such a hurry. For me, the, the concepts of the aspects of flow that are really exciting are what I I guess call more presence-based flow. If you've ever had a moment of being in creative flow, that is pure joy, right? Joy is the indicator that you are, you are working on another level in a, in a different way. Um, that's the aspect of flow that I'm really excited about and interested in. But to get there, it's not just about high performance. It's, it's about evolving ourselves to operate in a fundamentally different way. When you just let go, be still. Trust that the the forest knows where you are you are know you 're seen, you are safe right so this this tendency of people to look for certainty I think is ju- it 's because we have become used to using certainty as a form of security, but true security doesn 't come from any of these things that we 've created. True security comes from this deeper knowing of who we are and what we are capable of and are connection again to this, this wider world.
0: It may seem radical to propose that people in business trust to the pause in economic activity that is accompanying the coronavirus pandemic. Anthropologist of business Robert Moray, however, raises a critical eye to the alternative, which is to claim to understand that which is beyond our knowledge
12: you know, uh, some friends of mine have said to me, so what do you think? What's going on? You know, somebody sent me an article about how um, home designs are gonna be changing because everybody's not, the whole open concept is dead. Everybody's gonna want a foyer. Everybody's gonna want separate rooms. I said, well, you know, that, that came out about a week after all this happened. And I think, you know, uh, so many of the the, the the conclusions that we're coming to now, we're gonna reform it. It's a little bit like a stock market, you know. If you listen to these analysts, they are absolutely certain, you know, at three o'clock, of why something's happening. And then they're absolutely certain at 3.30 about why the opposite is happening, so who knows. Businesses tend to innovate so they can disrupt a market. So what's happened here is that there's been a disruption and now there's been innovation. So it's turned that on its head. And that's very interesting. It's sort of like you know the concept of punctuated equilibrium. You know, I mean, the dinosaurs didn't have a long time to adapt 65 million years ago. Um, We don't have a long time to adapt. Hopefully, we're going to do better. Although some of the companies that are continue to operate as dinosaurs, you know, that aren't set up to do the kinds of things they need to do, know, assume conferences or whatever, uh, are going to have a lot of trouble. Uh, You know, a lot of the smaller, small businesses that have been around, the mom and pop businesses um, are so, um, I I don't want to say that the dinosaurs, but it's going to be a lot tougher, some of them, because the way they operate isn't. As, as, um, as flexible as certain other kinds of businesses. Uh, we'll see what happens there. But I do find that, 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 that interesting in terms of a way of thinking about it, that, um, that there's, this, there's this idea that this asteroid is hit. Um, we've got to change and we've got to change quickly as opposed to the business, the business orientation of having control.
0: What kind of business would not be oriented to having control. Robert suggests an intriguing possibility. Control can often thwart innovation. That's why, in the history of life on Earth, evolution through natural selection often takes place in an odd rhythm of punctuated equilibrium, rather than at a slow and steady pace. The metaphor of the dinosaurs suggests that times of crisis create opportunity, hand in hand, with destruction. We can take the disrupted time and space that COVID-19 is imposing upon us, and whether we experience it as peaceful, painful, fast, slow, or something else, make use of its strangeness to make transformation happen. If this is the case, what businesses and the people who work within them need, is a craft for navigating the disorientation of crisis, for refining it out of its raw condition of simple confusion into something more productive. Business needs to find ways to have confidence in the process of change, even when the outcome cannot be reliably predicted. It just so happens that a system of cultural technology suited for this kind of reconciliation of uncertainty and confident transformation, already exists. It's known as ritual. Ritual is the process of enabling individuals and organizations to let go of their past patterns of behavior and make a lasting change. It just so happens that disorientation is one of the psychological tools that enables rituals to do their work. The workings of the ritual process in the crisis of COVID-19 will be the topic of next week's episode of the podcast. Thank you for listening to this second episode of Beyond Back to Normal. Quite soon, you'll be able to find a transcript for this episode on the websites beyondbacktonormal.com and businessinthetimeofcoronavirus.com. The song that opens and closes each episode in this podcast series is called Corona Norco from the 2010 album called To the Dust, From Man You Came and To Man You Shall Return by the instrumental duo Charles Atlas Chin up Stay well